You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is February 7th, Tuesday, February 7th. A lot of things going on. A lot of things have happened since we last recorded, uh, geopolitically and also economically. Let's start with the geopolitical first. Um, sadly, uh, the, the, there's a big earthquake in uh, Turkey, Syria, border regions, and it looks like there's going to be a lot of deaths. Um, I saw videos of, of buildings falling, et cetera, and right now I think there's like 6,000 deaths reported as, as per the Wall Street Journal. But I'm sure that number is going to climb because there's like all kinds of collapsed buildings, et cetera. Um, what I've heard in the past anecdotally is it's not earthquakes that kill people but buildings that kill people. When you have these types of events in really impoverished areas, uh, it can really be really bad, i.e. Haiti, et cetera. So thoughts are with the uh, individuals that are affected by that. Secondarily, from a uh, more domestic type issue, we had a, um, a balloon uh, that was spotted by somebody in Montana with their naked eye. Um, and then eventually we, it was determined that it was a Chinese spy ship shot down, et cetera. So that's becoming more of a, um, a more of a tangible type of issue for uh, Americans uh, in that that something is now uh, coming to our shore. Um, so, Doug, I want to get your thoughts on these particular items, and we can delve into the economic side of the equation. Uh, again, I think it's um, these sorts of na- sort of natural disasters are horrible, and um, and they occur, and uh, it's just a terrible outcome for those uh, people in Syria and Turkey. Um, on, a, on a lighter note, did I tell you about the time that um, I was in a earthquake in Mexico City? No. <laughs> Actually, I think, yeah, I did. I, I've heard this, but yeah, tell, tell the... Uh, uh, Sarah and I were on a trip. This is five years ago or so. We had just had our first child, and it's our first trip away from children and uh and so we're in mexico city this was right after mexico city had just gone through like a major uh, seven point whatever earthquake and the city was still um you know rebuilding from that i think it occurred in september and we were there in january february uh we're sitting in the hotel room and i'm in the shower and, and sarah's taking a nap and uh all of a sudden like i just get thrown back and forth in into the wall and into the glass in the shower. I don't know what's going on. I've never been in an earthquake before. Uh, and Sarah, Sarah starts running out. I'm still uh, in the shower and the hotel concierge <laughs> runs in and I'm just butt naked uh, trying to trying to find a towel. She's telling everybody to get out. This is like a five or six room boutique. And so I run out in the street and this is everybody still has a little bit of uh, uh, PTSD from the prior earthquake. So people are scrambling and, uh, and I'm sitting in the middle of the Avenue in Mexico city that we're staying on in a, a little section of town called, I think it was called La, La Roma, um, in my towel with no clothes on and, uh, barefooted and, um, and just waiting for things to subside. And so, um, that's my earthquake story. I've never been in one since and never had been in one prior, but um, those are no joke. I mean, the building, even even with a minor earthquake uh, experience there, the building was shaking, and I felt like I was on like a ship. I mean, the ground was like a big wave. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty horrible event. Right. So, 
yeah it's crazy and like 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 we said hopefully um those people get some resolution soon it's gonna be a long road to recovery in those particular areas like the one in mexico that you just mentioned i, I saw was a like a seven um and that's pretty similar to to what they experience in turkey but just given the the fact that mexico has to deal with these types of things on a regular basis there's like i mentioned previously um I'm in, a, in the process of learning Spanish and there's like five or six words for earthquake in Spanish because they're so common in Mexico. So, um, they're, they're building standards. Imagine experiencing that as like a, a primitive person. Right. Uh, when the, when the ground is just completely shaking, you have no, idea. you have that there's, there's a reason that there was a, a major spiritual component to, um, you know, these historic societies and multiple gods and things like that. I mean, how do you explain something like that uh, without science? Right, exactly. And then it's in, as it relates to the language aspect, like I mentioned in Mexican Spanish, there's a ton of ways to explain these things. It's kind of like they reminded me of the uh, Eskimos have like uh, 60 w- different ways of describing snow because um, it's such <laughs> it's so common. But anyway, shifting gears uh, to uh, what's going on in the in the domestic markets last week the federal reserve uh raised rates by 25 basis points they had had the fastest most rapid rate rate rising cycle in history raising rates from basically nothing to four and a half percent over the course of like eight or nine months and they communicated to the markets last week that they were going to slow down and had basically a couple more rate rises rate increases in the pipeline as it relates to what how the market um, took that, the market the markets responded very positively. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on on that, Doug, and and recent economic data. That particular uh, conference and data point was released last Wednesday. Today's Tuesday, the seventh, and markets are up significantly since then. Yeah, I think um, well, we had a couple bad days uh, on I think Friday and and then yesterday in markets and. Uh, I think the the narrative is going to shift for, away from the Federal Reserve and towards uh, corporate profits and and forecasts of profit margins and, and corporate earnings growth growth, and so I think um, in the next with the, with this quarter being you know, slow down in Federal Reserve policy, I think the market's going to shift its focus to uh, how are companies doing and. And we've seen some pretty weak numbers uh, from specifically the tech sector with uh, Apple, Google, Amazon, and, and well, Facebook had a or Meta had a, a great uh, bounce after the their earnings release, but just lower guidance on a go forward basis. And I and I saw a stat from uh, I think it was Goldman Sachs, and we could dig this up that corporate profits for the S and P five hundred are have been declining pretty steadily for. Uh, the last few revisions to the point where I think, think the expectation is a flat to a slight, slightly negative year in earnings. And so the question I would have is, is number one, is the market going to move on from the Fed, which I hope it does because I've never uh, considered Fed, Federal Reserve policy so much um, in my career as I have in the last 12 months. And then number two, if we do move on from Federal Reserve policy, are we focusing on 2023 earnings or is the market going to look past 2023 and, and look forward to 24 and 25? So um, it looks like uh, current consensus is flat to slightly down profits for the S&P 500 for this year and then a rebound in 24. 
Um, and so it depends on your valuation time frame for stocks. But if, uh, if the market as a consensus is looking at 2023 numbers, then forward earnings estimates compared to current price is slightly elevated. But if you're looking at 24 and 25, uh, we're trading basically in line with history at this point. So um, I could see uh, I can see it just kind of a slug through type year if we're focused on uh, corporate earnings and with a whole lot of volatility in between based upon what the Federal Reserve does. That's my my take. Goldman Sachs actually on that point. Goldman Sachs decreased their subjective probability of that the U.S. economy will enter a recession in the next 12 months from 35% to 25%. Remember when something like there was a, a poll that Bloomberg did and like 100% of economists projected that we were going to be in a recession at one point? 100, 100% of uh, CEOs. CEOs, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, we'll see what happens. I think there's there's the potential that we have a recession and we don't have a major crash in asset prices. I mean that's uh, it's recessions are not there's not a a one to one correlation between stock returns and economic data. I mean it's, it's basically uncorrelated. Right and and, and, right. So, and and equity prices usually appreciate in advance of any sort of economic recovery as well too. So trying to time saying that we've got a re- recession coming. We need to get out of the market. Usually, the markets have are already looking past that. Yeah, I um, my take is uh, there's still a wide range of outcome, and so which is why diversification is. Um, you know, what do they say? It's uh, diversification is basically always saying that you're sorry because one part of the portfolio is not going to be working. So, whether you're in stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, gold, whatever, a diversified portfolio should be set up for various outcomes with the emphasis on we tend to lean more towards optimism than pessimism in our allocation approach but um but but i think this is one of those periods in which the outcome potential outcome is so wide that uh enhanced diversification is is probably the name of the game so one of the reasons why our long-term mindset as it relates to corporate earnings should continue to grow etc Inflation sh- should continue to come down. I-, I found this statistic that, or this chart that was really prescient in that regards. This is from Bank of America. The, this is the workers needed at S&P 500 companies to generate $1 million in revenue. And starting in 1990, you needed eight workers to uh, achieve $1 million of revenue. And now it's two workers to achieve $1 million of revenue. Yeah, so productivity is increasing at a rapid rate, which is not something that's you know picked up in in GDP numbers, but it is picked up in profit margins for companies, and so that's that's one of the bearish takes over the last several years is that there's going to be a reversion to the historical average profit margin for the S and P 500, which would uh, reduce earnings and at current prices increase the price to earnings ratio because of declining earnings. But the consideration there is that, yeah, what was the makeup of the S&P 500 in the 1970s or the 1920s or in the 1980s and 90s? It was heavy-duty infrastructure. It was energy. It was railroad manufacturing. Now it's it's very technology-based. I mean, you have uh, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft as your biggest companies. Um, that that print money and are reducing headcount and still are guiding to 
increasing or flat uh, revenues and, and, and profits. And so profit margins may come down slightly, but um, or at least sales may come down slightly. But if you can couple that with um, with declining headcount, really, is which is the main driver of expense with these companies, then uh, then you can maintain your margins. I thought, you know, one of the things that was interesting that this is not a, a really good case for uh, enhancing profit margins, but with Twitter, when Musk took over, he had like 7,500 employees. They have 1,300 employees now. He's cut 80% of the workforce. And uh, I'm not noticing much of a difference at all in the functionality of the tool. There was just so much hiring for very little purpose it seems like a lot of these companies right um, you have managers that are managing managers that are managing managers basically on top of each other i worked before um while i was in law school i worked at hewlett packard which at that point in time had like 330 or 360,000 employees globally so just way too many employees it's been it's been subsequently um split up into different companies but at that point in time i remember my entire day would be consumed by meetings on uh, just complete and and everyone would get looped in on these meetings. So you'd have like ten people or twelve people in the meeting, and it would just be talking about. Sometimes you'd have meetings that talk about other to to talk about other meetings, basically, um, and that that's what takes right. place a lot of in, in corporate America. Um, so and it's this sort of self fulfilling cycle in terms of the need for more employees. But I think that once once other companies start to see, like Twitter, for example, be able to provide the exact same service without with a third of the employees that they have, I think that's a that also becomes a sort of self fulfilling prophecy, and that companies can see that they've got this bloat, unnecessary employees, Google laying off their laying off twenty seven massage therapists in California example for example, unlike we talked about last time, so it, it's hopefully that this that particular that particular prediction on the on the markets is incorrect but I, and I, I tend to, to take the other side of the equation because companies are certainly getting more efficient um, and should continue to get more efficient as time goes on yeah um, I will say something that I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll take one slight uh, variation here to talk about the bearish side of the the equation um, we're we're generally bullish we're, we're generally long-term optimists uh, with the idea that things um, there's economic interruption uh, once or twice a decade, and you sort of have to live with that. Uh, one person that I've been following is a guy by the name of Michael Cantro, who's uh, the chief investment strategist at Piper Sandler, which is a big investment bank. And he's a creator of what's called the HOPE cycle, and essentially what that uh, that acronym stands for is uh, the a economic cycle driven from a down downside perspective, driven first by housing H, second by new orders O orders, third to slowest profit margins, which is sort of what we've been talking about um, today, or profits themselves. So we you know flat to down year in the S and P five hundred, and the last piece is employment, and so that's something that we haven't seen yet is is higher unemployment. Uh, we saw a jobs number last week of something like five hundred thousand um, uh, new jobs created in the economy in January, which is just a crazy number at this stage in the economic cycle. But his whole, his whole deal is, you know, housing that leads to new orders, that leads to profit margins, that leads to higher unemployment. And then the cycle uh, reverts to the upside and that he thinks we're in the P version portion of this 
particular cycle, we've been talking a lot about soft landings. And his whole contention is that in all prior cycles, uh, you know, the call was for a soft la- landing until it was too late. And he posted a lot of uh, uh, news articles from, uh, he had four news articles from 2007 by Reuters, by um, uh, the Washington uh, Journal. Um, he had one by uh, uh, Financial Times and, and one by Business uh, all talking about a soft landing. This was in 2007. In 2000, he had uh, four articles, different publications talking about a soft landing. Of course, 2000 then led to 2001 and 2002. Tech bubble bursting and, and 9-11. 2000 led to 2008, 2000, 2007 soft landing call then was uh, subsequently the financial crisis. And then he has an article from 1990 talking about a soft landing prospect, um, and then that was before the SNL crisis in the early 90s. And so um, we're generally optimists, and, and we're going to take the approach of a soft landing and be long-term optimists and think that corporate America will continue to grow and compound profit margins, but take into account that um, there are instances uh, that you know they, their recessions occur from first calling for a soft landing and then of course, that doesn't materialize and, and things fall out of bed. And that's why diversification is important. And having assets in your portfolio that uh, do well or at least sustain value during economic downturns is important to have during periods of stress. And you feel like you don't need them during a, a market like 2021, but you love to have them in markets like 2022 or you know who knows what's going to come in the future. And so um, I'll point to Michael Cantor as somebody to read as a more of a pessimistic view, uh, and we'll take the we'll take the side of the optimists because they think we think they win out over a long period of time. But understand that um, you know there's competing views out there, and everyone sounds smart, and you just have to take a side. And, and we generally take the side of long term and optimistic. Right, agreed. Um, it's it's always good to look at alternate viewpoints, and there are a lot of smart people on all sides of the equation. Usually, the ones that try to try to scare you positively or negatively are the ones to ignore. Um, in any event. I wanted to I want to shift gears on this, Doug, and talk a little bit more about the, the sort of uh, intangible, um, in terms of good habits, um, what happens with people when they get rich quick, etc. This first, first, I'm going to lead off with a quote from Benjamin Franklin: "Your net worth to the world is what remains after your bad habits are subtracted from your good ones." So uh, that's what Ben Ben Franklin said about net worth. And this that this particular article made me think about about that particular Ben Franklin quote. This is from the Wall Street Journal on uh, February fourth, so a few days ago. Amateur trader Omar Gs said that he amassed roughly one point five million as stocks surged during the early part of the pandemic, gripped by a speculative fervor that cascaded across all the markets. As gains swelled, so did his spending on everything from sports betting and bars to luxury cars. He also borrowed heavily to amplify his position. When the party ended, his fortune evaporated to some wrong-way bets and his excessive spending. To support himself, he says he now works at a deli in Las Vegas that pays him roughly $14 an hour, plus tips and sales uh, area timeshares. He no longer has any money invested in the market. So this guy started from $1.5 million. Now he has basically nothing. And the article concludes with, he says he has no money in the market right now, 
and shared screenshots of his accounts showing that he had roughly 15000 in credit card debt, around 36000 in an auto loan, and $6.99 in a checking account. He says he has some cash, too. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's unfortunate. It, it's it's one of those, it's the sort of the Gen Z and you know late millennial version of a 2000 or a 2008, which... Um, you know, you go like 2008 with buying five or six different houses, um, you know, with all adjustable rate mortgages or 2000 and buying all the dot-com uh, tech stocks. This is just this generation's version of one of those just complete, uh, you know, capital exhaustion events, uh, money completely lit on fire. And then you, you, my fear with this is that you have these people that um, – you know, had they done, been more disciplined, uh, done more steady and uh, consistent investing in a diversified portfolio would have been fine. You have an event like this um, where spending also increases, but also you have the prospect of never getting entering the market again because you've been burned once, you know, so to speak. And so that psychology of not wanting to do that again is it, it, it's almost life destroying because you don't experience the the benefits of compound interest over decades because you uh you wrote it up and wrote it down and uh and now you don't have anything to do with it again right and and i saw a statistic from cnbc that day trading is at the lowest level in three years which i think is probably a bullish signal um but but as, as it relates to to you hear these stories about about obviously people that had life-changing money this guy was 25 years old and had a million and a half dollars i think get the analogy that you drew as it relates to people that were likewise super well off in the in the um, the years preceding the global financial crisis and the real estate bubble in the United States in the uh, mid to late two uh, thousands, you've got people that go on that go on the other side that break the other way and make smart decisions. I specifically uh, watched a podcast uh, with Shannon Sharp, who was a former tight end um, in the NFL. He interviewed uh, Chad Ochocinco. Uh, who was a wide receiver in the NFL. And uh, the, the, the interview was really interesting, and I encourage everybody to watch it because of the perception, and this is the the real reality, unfortunately, with a lot of athletes, is that they come from nothing, and then they get paid a handsome sum for three or four years, five or six years, et cetera, and then they let a huge percentage of them are broke. That didn't happen with Chad Ochocinco. If you listen to the article, or listen to the podcast, he says that he saved 83% of his salary. And in, in, in particular, he has some idiosyncrasies. A lot of the guys in the NFL have uh, jewelry and earrings, et cetera, that are diamonds, and they're trying to impress people. Uh, Chad Ochocinco bought all of his jewelry. It was all fake from Claire's, which is like a like a, a uh, jewelry store in the mall. That's where I got my. <laughs> that's where I got my first girlfriend. I got her like a red love bracelet for <laughs> Valentine's Day for like eight eight right, bucks exactly at Claire's, so. and it was like all the money. Right. I had. And then also Chad uh, Ochocinco flies Spirit Airlines, and he says what he does, which I have done as well too. But interestingly enough, but anyway, so Chad Ochocinco will will uh, pony up for the uh, for the the exit row on Spirit Airlines, but. There's, so it's getting all back to the, these good habits and trying to avoid bad ones and creating good ones. You, you, you see this, this particular individual in the Wall Street Journal article that, um, was, that flamed out very quickly. 
and then you see somebody on the other side of the equation like uh, Chad Ochocinco. I don't even remember his his original last name. What was it? Chad, Chad Johnson. Johnson. That's right. Uh, that uh, has done a really good job and has avoided a lot of the bad decisions that are typically common uh, amongst that uh, professional athlete subset. Yeah, and that's the the other thing is you read all these horrible stories about you know people that have uh, you know experienced the the benefits and the negatives of participating in a bubble, and so it, there's a fear mongering component to uh, more headlines being pessimistic than optimistic, and so that compounds the the negative sentiment around investing, um, and so it's just you know, breaking through that to finding good stories like like Chad Johnson or Chad Ochocinco and, uh, and ignoring the ones where people lose all their money in the markets and, and trying to scare you away from investing uh, is generally a good framework as well. Sort of that naive, I'm just going to continue to dollar cost average into my 401k plan or into my brokerage account or into my uh, kids or grandkids 529 plan, regardless of market environment, I'm going to ignore the headlines and um, anything that's trying to scare me, that's been a uh, tried and true st- strategy. And you know, by Chad saving eighty percent of his salary plus, I mean that's the biggest component to success is uh, just generally savings. It has nothing to do with whatever market environment you're in. That's the you get some added boost if you start investing at the right time, or added you know drag if you start investing at the wrong time. The biggest determinant of success is going to be your rate of savings, right? And also, the what an attitude that Chad Johnson, Chad Ojasinko got across in his interview was that nobody really cares about you're trying. People buy jewelry, et cetera, to try to impress other people, but in, in actuality, nobody really thinks about you or really is impressed. And that's something that Morgan Hazel talks about a lot in his book. Um, that it, what, what was the name of that book, Doug? Uh, Psychology, psychology of money of investing psychology of money or psychology of right money. it's yeah. it's basically that the whole idea is that tr- the more that you try to show people how wealthy you are the less money you have and that's what what uh, chad ojo says in his article um in his uh in his podcast so anyway we'll close it with that if you enjoyed this please share this podcast with your friends family give it five stars and we'll see you guys next week thank you so much Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.